to the latest episode in the Grace and Joy podcast. And this is a very short episode. I haven't recorded an episode for quite a long time. I've been quite busy painting for an exhibition that's coming up soon. And I've just been reading some of the letters that Van Gogh has written to his brother, Theo, and I know it could be Van Gogh, Van Gogh, and Theo, or Theo, so apologies for any mispronunciations. But reading these letters, just, they are so startling and beautiful, and the relation between painting and poetry and sensibility And I had to stop reading, and I had to write, and then I had to record this. So one of these letters to Theo, written from The Hague in November 1882, when I think Van Gogh would have been 29 or 30, and he writes this. Sometimes I have such a longing to do landscape, just as I crave a long walk to refresh myself. And in all nature, for instance in trees, I see expression and soul, so to speak. A row of pollard willows sometimes resembles a procession of almshouse men. Young corn has something inexpressibly pure and tender about it, which awakens the same emotion as the expression of a sleeping baby, for instance. The trodden grass at the roadside looks tired and dusty, like the people of the slums. A few days ago, when it had been snowing, I saw a group of Savoy cabbages standing frozen and benumbed, and it reminded me of a group of women in their thin petticoats and old shawls, which I had seen standing in a little hot water and coal shop early in the morning. And I just find the relationship of these images and the connections with nature so striking and beautiful and took me right back to memories of reading Imagist poetry Um, and famously the Ezra Pound poem, the very short poem, In a Station of the Metro. The apparition of these faces in the crowd Petals on a wet, black bough. And it's just astounding, this this stark relation and interconnection of a moment, an image. And the Imagists were originally a group of about seven or eight poets, four Americans and three British poets, including F.S. Flint and D.H. Lawrence, and H.D., Hilda Doolittle, and Ezra Pound, the Americans, and Amy Lowell. And it was really difficult to decipher what they actually meant by their term of being imagist poets. And they did bring out a few anthologies, and around about 1910, they, they kind of started and met together until about 1917, and then there were later revisits to the Imagist poems, but it was very much of a time kind of between the wars and during the First World War. And I was just reading, I've got this very good penguin copy of Imagist poetry, 
edited with an introduction by Peter Jones. And they detail here Ezra Pound's specifications when he talks about the absolutely accurate presentation and no verbiage. And he wrote to William Carlos Williams, the American poet, in 1908, so a bit earlier, and he said, the ultimate attainment of poetry is one, to paint the thing as I see it. Number two, beauty. Number three, freedom from didacticism. And four, it is only good manners if you repeat a few other men to at least do it better or more briefly. Utter originality is, of course, out of the question. And then these were kind of changed and more statements and more do's and don'ts. And then they defined the image as that which presents an intellectual and emotional complex in an instant of time. So Flint's notes on imagism include three rules. One, direct treatment of the thing, whether subjective or objective. Two, to use absolutely no word that did not contribute to presentation. And three, as regarding rhythm, to compose in sequence of the musical phrase, not in sequence of a metronome. And further as well, that there should be no abstractions, no metaphor, really, no implied meaning put onto what you are seeing. So true seeing. And that also reminds me of Rilke and Rodin. And Rilke worked with Rodin for a while and Rodin used to get him to go out and really look, really see, use your eyes, really see the direct treatment of the thing without overlaying your subjective impressions and filters and projections onto these things. Just be faithful to what you are seeing. So very much as well, moving away from especially poetic diction of the 19th century towards the syntax and the rhythms of common daily speech. I find it really interesting as well when you have a poem like In a Station of the Metro, the apparition of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet black bough, and how it's been described as trying to record the precise instant when a thing outward and objective transforms itself or darts into a thing inward and subjective. And some of the poems by F.S. Flint really link with Van Gogh to me in his colour and depiction of the poor and those coming home from the almshouses. And so this is one, it's called Beggar. In the gutter, piping his sadness, an old man stands, bent and shriveled, beard draggled, eyes dead, huddled and mean, shivering in threadbare clothes, winds beat him, hunger bites him, forlorn, a whistle in his hands, piping. Hark! the strange quality of his sorrowful music, wind from an empty belly, wrought magically into the wind, pattern of silver on bronze. 
Oh, and you can probably hear Charlie sneezing in the background there. Charlie. So that's my cat. <laughs> oh my goodness. Charlie, you're sneezing a lot. Right. Hmm. Okay. Right. So he stopped sneezing now, I think. Charlie. Right. So, yes, this darkness and the non-sentimentality of the subject matter. And also this one by F.S. Flint. November. What is eternal of you, I saw in both your eyes. You were among the apple branches, the sun shone, and it was November. Sun and apples and laughter and love we gathered, you and I, and the birds were singing. I just love the shining clarity of that very short poem, like a, an instant photograph or image just a, a purity about it which is so unfussy and so clear just just beautiful and here's another one of nature and sorrow and beggars and it's by dh lawrence listen to the band there is a band playing in the early night but it is only unhappy men making a noise to drown their inner cacophony and ours. A little moon, quite still, leans and sings to herself through the night, and the music of men is like a mouse gnawing, gnawing in a wooden trap, trapped in. There are so many others, and here's, here's one by Amy Lowell, and it's simply called Wind and Silver. Greatly shining, the autumn moon floats in the thin sky and the fish ponds shake their backs and flash their dragon scales as she passes over them. Such a stark, clear, bright, pure image. I just, it makes me shiver sometimes when I read these poems. It's just amazing. And... I had that similar feeling when I was reading the letter from Van Gogh to his brother Theo, where his prose is so full of poetry, but not, not a sentimental, kind of hackneyed poetry, just a brittle, hard, true, honest, authentic poetry within the prose, and a very imagist stating what there is, what then naturally is within the landscape. So when he writes, I see expression and soul, so to speak, from the outer to the inner, um, that he sees in trees and all of nature, this essential soul that's in all of us, that is our connection, in a very clear, plain distinction as well in, in his painting. So... A row of pollard willows sometimes resembles a procession of almshouse men. And young corn has something inexpressibly pure and tender about it, which awakens the same emotion as the expression of a sleeping baby. I mean, that's just utterly fabulous um, simile and metaphor. And it's just... It makes me just catch my breath and almost want to cry. It's just so true and so relatable and just beautiful. 
and sparks off so many other inspired ways of sensing and experiencing the world as we do. You know, the senses aren't distinct and things can't be put into little boxes of what we see, what we hear, what, you know, you have your metaphor here, you have your your direct prose here, your prosaic and your metaphor. It, it can never be like that. Just like subjects in school can never really, certainly not to any good good consequence be separated out with your history your english your geography or whatever your maths or whatever i love this as well and it's very like some of the exercises that that we do in the intuitive painting grace and joy workshop where i'll play very different kinds of music and we'll see how that affects the marks that we make the pressure that we use the the feel of the line, the thickness of the line. And he says here, some artists have a nervous hand at drawing, which gives their technique something of the sound peculiar to a violin. And he says, others remind one more of piano playing. He says to Theo, do you feel this too? And Millet is perhaps a stately organ. I love this this bit as well, which perhaps quite surprisingly expresses how much of Van Gogh's art is founded on love and peace. He says, This is my ambition, which is, in spite of everything, founded less on anger than on love, more on serenity than on passion. It is true that I am often in the greatest misery, but still there is a calm, pure harmony and music inside of me. He says he wants to progress so far that people will say of his work, ah, he feels deeply, he feels tenderly, notwithstanding um, his so-called roughness, but perhaps even because of it, he wanted his drawings to touch people. And I also love the way that he relates writing to painters as well. And it made me feel, you know, that In the beginning, he wanted to be able to express love, the love of spirit and God through preaching and being a pastor like his father and preaching to miners in the black coal mines, for instance. He says they're very much impressed by the words of the gospel and he sees the whole of the Bible as the light that arises in the darkness, from darkness to light. And he says, well, who needs this most? Who will be receptive to it? Experience has shown that people who walk in the darkness in the centre of the earth, like the miners, very physically as well, walk in the centre of the earth and they love to come up to grass. You know, the light is so important to them. Vincent van Gogh writes, When I was standing in the pulpit, I felt like somebody who, emerging from a dark cave underground, comes back to the friendly daylight. It is a delightful thought that in the future, wherever I go, I shall preach the gospel. To do that well, one must have the gospel in one's heart. And he, for me, did this so very much through his painting in the future. The same message, communicating the same beauty and transience and infinite within nature as expressing these elements through doctrines or religious texts. 
Sorry, this is quite a rambling episode. I'm just looking through this this wonderful book. And as always, there's lots of marginalia. I use my pencil and I have to communicate with the book that I'm reading. And so there are lots of scribbled notes in the side. I just, every book for me becomes a communication, becomes a something that I really immerse myself in. And this one, I love this this little bit about crayons. Uh, instead of Conte pencils. So perhaps he means more pastel or, or, or crayons. And he writes, there is a soul and life in a crayon. I think Conte pencil is dead. Two violins may look the same on the outside, but in playing them, one sometimes finds a beautiful tone in one and not in the other. Now that crayon has a great deal of tone or depth, I could almost say the crayon knows what I want. It listens with intelligence and obeys. The Conte pencil is indifferent and unwilling. And then he says, which is just so beautiful, the crayon has a gypsy soul, a real gypsy soul. And then he says to Theo, oh, if it isn't asking too much of you, send me more. Because <laughs> obviously Theo was the most amazing supporter emotionally and financially and in all ways for his brother. And very lastly, just to continue and to finish this episode, um, he says, in my opinion, I am rich, not in money, but though it doesn't happen every day, rich because I have found in my work something which I can devote myself to, heart and soul, and which inspires me and gives a meaning to my life. Of course, my moods change, but the average is serenity. I have a firm faith in art, a firm confidence in its being a powerful stream which carries a man to a harbour. <sighs> and... Oh, I just want to get up and paint that. <laughs> I often find actually when I'm reading, I have an urge to jump up and paint and it's often an intuitive painting that emerges, not to be shown to anyone, but just something that has to be expressed through the words that I've read or written myself. But this, a firm confidence in its being a powerful stream which carries a man to a harbour, though he himself must do his bit too, of course. At all events... I think it is such a great blessing when a man and woman has found his work that I cannot count myself among the unfortunate, Vincent says. And it's just so beautiful if we can find that which lights us up and that which inspires us. It can be so hard to find that which inspires us when our days really are filled with making sure we've got enough to pay our rent and to eat every day and to support our children. It's it's very hard also to cut through cultural conditioning and all sorts of conditioning and our own, you know, our, our own voices in our own heads, let alone others, um, and to stay true but when we do say yes, when we find something that glistens and glimmers and can and that can be a powerful stream that carries us to a harbour. There's 
always here, you know, this home that's within and it's not given by anything externally, but it's a soul calling, a true soul calling. The more we say yes to that, the more our life unfolds by itself. Life takes care of life, as Muji says, and it's only in trusting this that we experience it and then allow it to continue or just watch it unfold, not even allowing. So I just wanted to share those little bits of, of wonders from the fabulous letters of Vincent van Gogh that I'm reading and, and how that sparked off a connection with the imagist poetry for me and also the expression of spirit in nature, in life and in our soul's calling. So I hope you have a wonderful day and my cat has now stopped sneezing and he's probably gone downstairs to the cat food dish. So um, I'll see you in the next one. Bye.